following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. And we're going to be doing this uh, 12 chapters of John, as I said, over the next 20 weeks. We started last week looking at what's called the prologue, the first section of the book of John. And so I want to just bring you up to speed with uh, where we're at in this book in case you weren't here last week. Basically, last week I told you that um, when I first started uh, getting to know who Jesus is, when I first started reading the Bible, the first book I went to was the book of John uh, because that's the one I'd heard most about before. So I turned there and I started reading it. And uh, at the time I was reading a lot of philosophy um, and I really enjoyed reading philosophy and also ancient history. And so I was enjoying reading this historical account of this man, Jesus. And I found myself just just really being impressed by him as, as a man. And the kinds of things he said were very impressive. And I recognized a lot of them because a lot of the things Jesus said have made their way into our everyday language today and indeed around the world in different languages. There will be sayings of Jesus worked into the, the fabric of the culture just by virtue of how idiomatic they were, just how impressive they were. And so I read this account of Jesus and I sort of added him to my list of impressive men that I wanted to be like. Uh, I, I added him to this list of impressive philosophers and moralists and examples that I thought was worthwhile getting to know a little bit better. But something I said last week is that if you're going to read the book of John as John intended it to be read, if you're going to read this account of Jesus' life written by one of his three best friends and get it and unlock it and understand it, then you need to know from the beginning that John will not allow us to think about Jesus in those ways that I've just described. He, will, he does not stand for it. He will not let us think of Jesus merely as a good man, a good moralist, a good philosopher. To John, Jesus is absolutely emphatically nothing less than God himself. And John says this as much in the first verse of this book. I encourage you to go back and read the first 18 verses of the book of John and you'll see clearly to John, Jesus is the eternal God who has come into the world as a man. Absolutely, emphatically, without a shadow of a doubt. And so I was, I was faced with this conundrum. Do I go on believing something about Jesus that his closest friends didn't believe themselves and that the Bible wouldn't allow me to believe? Or would I say, Jesus is God? I knew that was going to be something that changed my life forever. That decision between those two options was going to change who I was and what I did for the rest of my days. And by God's grace, I submitted to Jesus as God as the, the man who he said he was, God in human flesh. And so we come into this passage this morning with that presupposition in place. John presupposes that we know now that Jesus is God. At the very least, he has told us emphatically that Jesus is the eternal God made in human flesh, who came into the world for us. And so with that thought in mind, I want us to turn to these verses and I really want us to, to go through each verse and, and I'll just I'll walk through this and, and we can see what God has for us this morning. So 
hopefully you've got that in front of you. If not, take a look at the screen and we'll start in verse 19 to 23. John says this. This is the testimony of John. The word testimony there is the word witness. We saw last week that John's going to use the word witness, I think, 36 times in his gospel. He is all about showing you the evidence for Jesus being God himself. And so he's calling witnesses. His first witness is John. This is not himself. This is John the Baptist, another John, uh, and he's the first witness he's going to call. So verse 19, this is the testimony or the witness of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Let me give us a little bit of context for this passage. The people of Israel, the Jewish nation, uh, have been waiting and waiting and waiting for a promised Messiah. This was going to be a king in the line of the king, king David, their most famous king of all time. He was going to be a descendant of David who was going to come to Israel and he was going to rule and reign as their king forever. He was going to uh, disperse their enemies and establish the kingdom of Zion forever. This was their Messiah. And it's been 400 years since they last heard from God about this. Malachi, the last book in your Old Testament, a book we preached through last year, if you're interested in getting the audio, it's all on our website. That book is the last um, word from God that they received via the prophet Malachi, and that was 400 years ago. So they've had 400 years of waiting. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for anything these days, right? Post social media um, devices and everything else that we have, I can't wait for a single thing, all right? Um, these guys have been waiting, this nation, these men and women of Israel have been waiting 400 years for the Messiah to come. And now they're being oppressed by the Romans. The Romans have completely overtaken their country. And so now more than ever, they're waiting for the Messiah to come and kick out the Romans and establish the kingdom of Israel forever. And then in Jerusalem, where all the religious leaders are at, where they have their kind of religious headquarters at the temple there, they get word, they hear a rumor that there's something going on down by the Jordan River. That there's this man named John the Baptist. He's a little bit weird. He, he dresses in camel hair, he eats honey and locusts, and, and, he's, and he's calling people to repent, and he's baptizing them in the River Jordan, and he has a massive following. And so they hear about this, and they think to themselves, could this be? Could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? It's been 400 years. It's about time this could be the man. And so the the religious guys in Jerusalem send a delegation over to the River Jordan and they go to John the Baptist and they say, show us your ID. Show us your ID. Who are you? Are you the one we've been waiting for? They say, who are you? And he knows why they've come. He knows what's on their mind. So the first thing he says is, I am not the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. I am not 
the Messiah. And so they say, well, are you Elijah? Elijah was one of the most powerful prophets in Old Testament history. And Malachi prophesied, if you remember in the book of Malachi, prophesied that before the Messiah came, Elijah would come back, preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And so they say, are you him? Are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not. And they say, well, well, are you the prophet? Moses in Deuteronomy had said, there is a man coming who is going to be greater than me, greater than Moses, a prophet who's going to come again, preparing the way for the Messiah. Are you the prophet, they say? And he says, I am not. Now, it's interesting because he denies that he's Elijah. He denies that he's a prophet. But actually, Jesus makes clear a little bit later on in this book, or at least in uh, the book of Mark, that, that John the Baptist really was like Elijah. He actually refers to him as Elijah, kind of a second Elijah. That he is the prophet that Malachi prophesied about. Now, whether it's because John doesn't know this yet, or whether it's because, as we're going to see, he's very humble and self-effacing, I don't know. But he says to them, no, I'm not that. I am, as Isaiah says in chapter 40, the voice. I am the voice. I'm not the word. That's the title that John gave Jesus last week. But I'm the voice. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. He's like the the security guard that goes ahead of the movie star, preparing the way, clearing the way through the crowds, making the way straight. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. He says the Messiah is not far away. I'm preparing that way for him. And so John went throughout the land preaching that people should repent because the Messiah was here, baptizing them in water in a baptism of repentance for sin. So he says, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet, but I am the voice. I am preparing the way for the Lord. And you're going to see right throughout this passage that John is very humble. He knows his place. He knows that he's just preparing the way, that he is not the way himself. He knows that he is just a spokesman for the king. He's not the king himself. And he knows even though he's getting all this attention and all of these followers, that his place is to shrink back into the background and ultimately, as we'll see, to die a martyr's death. But he is there to prepare the way for the Lord. And this is a a lesson for us as witnesses. I said last week, if you're here as a Christian this morning, then you're called to be a witness. You're called to give a testimony to God's grace. You're called to tell others about what God has done in your life. That He has forgiven you and set you free and adopted you into His family. That He's pardoned you and welcomed you into eternal life. That you're called to be a witness. And here's a really good example for us. Later on, John will say these very famous words. He'll say, I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. And his whole ministry was about deflecting glory away from himself, attention away from himself to Jesus. And that's all we're called to do, isn't it? That's all we're called to do is, is, to, is to tell people, to share with people what God has already done in us and to give 
Jesus all the glory. He's the one who's done everything from start to finish. We can't claim anything. We're not better people than everyone else. We're not more moral. We're not more ethical. We're not more intelligent. We're not better looking. Although you guys are looking pretty good this morning, alright? But we're not. We're not more wealthy. We can't claim any of this for ourselves. We're to give the glory to God. I remember when I first became a Christian when I was 19, very soon after reading this gospel, I came back from overseas where I'd been for a couple of years and the, the change that people saw in my life was so extraordinary that I started getting asked to stand up in churches and youth groups and stuff uh, and, and to give my testimony, to give my witness to what God had done in my life. And you know what? More often than not, for the first, I don't know, dozen times, the story was all about me. The story I told was all about me. It was all about what I'd done and now how much better I was. The story was about me and I was the hero of the story. And Jesus got a little bit at the end. And that's what we hear so often when people give testimony to what God has done in your life. Really, what it comes down to is what they have done in their life. And Jesus gets a mention at the end somewhere, maybe in the prayer. But John's a good example. Whenever we're telling people about what God has done in our life, we need to make Jesus the hero that he is. And isn't that good? Like it's not about us. I know many of us feel ill-equipped to tell people our story, to tell people about Jesus because we feel like people will see us for the phonies that we are, for the hypocrites that we are. But the great news is that actually when we're sharing our testimony with others, to admit that we're a hypocrite is a great idea. Just get that out of the way early, all right? Just let them know I'm a hypocrite from from the beginning and then point to Jesus, who is no hypocrite, who is the greatest man who ever lived, who lived a perfect life and then died on your behalf. Make it all about Jesus. And that's exactly what John does. He's going to continue to do it. Let's read verse 24 to 28. John says, They had been sent, this delegation had been sent from the Pharisees. They were religious leaders in the day. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Again, John is going to deflect the attention away from him. He's going to say, no, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. I've got a following. I've got a message. I'm getting some popularity here. I'm getting some followers. People are talking about me. But I'm not the Christ. I'm not the man. That's not me. In fact, that man, Jesus, I'm not fit to untie his sandals. Untying someone's sandals was the job of the lowest slave in the household. Because if you're walking around the Middle East all day through dung and dirt and everything else, that, you know, that's not a job you're going to want to do. So it's the lowest slave in the household gets that job. And John says, I'm not fit to untie his sandals. Deflecting glory away from himself. And toward him who really deserves it. The one who really deserves the glory. 
Verse 29, the next day, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Two major titles that he gives Jesus in that passage that we just read, that little part of the Gospel. Two titles that I just want to camp in this this moment and and talk about those two titles because they are absolutely profound. Verse 29 and verse 34. He calls him the Lamb of God and the Son of God. So verse 29 he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Looking at Jesus coming towards him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then verse 34, I have seen and I have borne witness. I testify that this is the Son of God. The Lamb of God and the Son of God. I want to look at those two titles for Jesus for just a minute. The Lamb of God. This is a title along with the Son of God that these Jewish readers would have instantly recognized would have had massive amounts of meaning for them. For us, probably not so much. So here's where it's coming from. A few different sources in Old Testament history. The major one I think he's thinking of as he looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. He's thinking of the Passover, the first Passover. Do you remember in the Exodus? You read about it in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel, they are slaves in the land of Egypt. Egypt is the major superpower of the world and they have the entire nation of Israel under their thumb. They have them slaving away so that they can build their empire. The entire nation, the entire race is subservient to just tyrannical overlords in the Egyptians. And they're making them work and work and work to death. And so God hears their cries for deliverance. He sends Moses to speak to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. God's had enough. This is God's people. You need to let them go. You need to let them free so that God can deliver them into the promised land so that they can worship him as his people. And Pharaoh hardens his heart towards Moses. He hardens his heart towards God and he says, no way. And so God works powerfully against Pharaoh to teach him that you don't say no way to God when he commands you to do something. He sends plague after plague. He ends up sending ten plagues. And after each plague, Pharaoh, rather than repenting and saying, yes, I submit to God, you are the real king, you are the real God, I myself am not the king of the universe. Instead of doing that, he hardens his heart and hardens his heart and says no, no, no. And so God sends the final and most terrible plague. He says to Moses, tonight I'm going to send the angel of death through the land of Egypt and every firstborn son will die. 
every firstborn son in Egypt will die. But I will spare everyone who puts their faith in me. And the way that you are to demonstrate that you trust me and have faith in me is to take a lamb, a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb, to slit its throat, to paint its blood on your doorposts, and when the angel of death comes through, he will pass over the houses on which the blood of the lamb is painted. And that night, true to his word, God sends that avenging angel, every firstborn in Egypt dies, except those who had put their faith in God, put their faith in the Lamb of God and painted its blood on their doorposts. They were spared. Pharaoh is finally broken down. He relents. He lets the people go. He ends up pursuing them in the end, but at least for the meantime, he lets them go and the people of Israel walk out of Egypt to freedom. That's the Lamb of God, as the Jews would have heard it from the lips of John the Baptist. And he sees Jesus and says, Behold, which just means, look, everyone, look. Look at this guy. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Throughout Israel's history, after they left Egypt and worshipped Him in the wilderness and then in the Promised Land, God set up a sacrificial system whereby because they were sinful, they could sacrifice animals in order to have their sins forgiven. God said to them that the, the, the wages, the punishment, the inheritance for your sin is death. Therefore, something must die because of your sin. It can either be you or it can be an animal. And so they set up this sacrificial system by, by which animals could be killed in their place and for their sin. And so John sees Jesus walking towards him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew in that moment that Jesus had come not only to say great things, not only to lead a new movement, but to die as a sacrifice, as the ultimate sacrifice, as the one true spotless Lamb, so that no more lambs had to be killed. He was going to be the once for all Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and then he testifies that this is not only the Lamb of God but the Son of God. And you just need to know if you can't uh, if, you, if you sort of haven't grown up in church, if you don't know the background, Son of God just means God Himself. It has always just meant God Himself. It's nothing less than God Himself. It's not like the Father is the real, you know, big, full God and, and the Son of God is sort of a half-God growing up to be a real God. No, the Son of God is God Himself. The Jews knew this perfectly well in Jesus' day. That's why in John 15... I think it's verse 18. Uh, Sorry, John 5, verse 18. He says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, that is, the Son of God, making himself equal with God. Jesus' claim to be the Son of God was nothing less than saying, I am God. 
That's why they wanted to kill him. That's why they ended up killing him. It was a charge of blasphemy to say that you were God in human flesh. And here is the absolute center of the Christian faith. If you came here this morning and you're wondering, what do these guys believe? This is it. We believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Son of God. This is the beauty and the brutality of the Christian faith. That God would sacrifice himself to save us. That God himself would become the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, so that we could be spared. That God himself would come into human history as a man, Jesus, with the express purpose to die as the once for all sacrifice for our sin. That is the Son of God who becomes the Lamb of God for our sake. Why? Because we're so important? Because we're so valuable? Because we're so worth dying for? No. The Bible says that while we were enemies of God, He died for us. That's amazing. So you might be here this morning thinking, these guys are talking about being Christians. That's great. I can't be a Christian because I'm not good enough. That's a lie. None of us is good enough. That's the point. That's why God became a man so that he could die in our place and for our sin. He is the sacrifice. All of us deserve death, but we need not experience eternal death because he has already paid that price for us in dying in our place. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, I don't meet many atheists these days. I meet a lot of people who say they're atheists, but when we get talking, it's clear they're actually not. They don't have enough faith to be an atheist, all right? They're not willing to believe the whole picture of, of what atheists believe, all right? Right down to the, the, the absolute depths of human secularist thought that means none of us is any more worth, has any more worth than the tree out the front that's dying now as a result of the sun, right? There is no more reason why the, the tree should die than that I should die, okay? So when we get to that point where there's absolutely no objective moral values, where there's absolutely no dignity of wor- or worth for humanity, that's when people stop b- being atheists and start admitting to be uh, kind of agnostic, all right? But I think ultimately, if I was going to rank the number one belief, and this is functional belief, whether people say it or not, in Aussie culture, as I talk to people around here, What people generally believe, the way people think the universe works is according to karma. And people, if you you listen to people, they'll refer to this all the time. What goes around comes around, right? This is how the universe works. If you do good things, you'll get good things. If you're a, a, um, I'm trying to think of something that's not a swear word. If you're a mean person, then bad stuff will happen to you. That's basically how people functionally think the, the universe works. And they're not talking about the, uh, the Buddhist or Hindu belief, because if they believe that, then if they got drunk, they'd, wait, you know, they'd come back as a worm or something. So that's too hardcore for them. So they step back a little bit, and it's just sort of, if you do good stuff generally, you'll get good stuff generally. That's how karma works according to the collective consciousness of the culture around us. Let me tell you something. If that's true, I'm screwed, all right? I am screwed, and so are you. Because I think if we're all honest... 
if that's the way the world works and we look at the way we think, the way we act, we're in a lot of trouble. There's a, uh, a band, a little band you might have heard of called U2. And uh, the uh, front man for that band, Bono, was interviewed uh, a little while ago and um, he got into this subject. He's a, he's a Christian and um, he got into this subject with the interviewer about karma and grace. The difference between karma, what goes around comes around, and grace, free, unmerited, Love and forgiveness by God that we don't deserve. And so uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of this interview for you. Just listen really carefully to what he says. He says, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The interviewer says, he's not a Christian, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wish I could believe in that. Bono says, but I love the idea of the sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, you cretins, there are certain results to the way we are, to selfishness. And there's a mortality as part of your very sinful nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to actions. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that, we put what the, so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. That's exactly right. That's exactly what John the Baptist just said. That's the whole Christian belief right there. We're holding out. We're hoping. We're assured. We're having our faith embedded in and anchored in the truth that we will not get what we deserve. That rather we will get free, unmerited grace forgiveness, eternal life. That's what we're hoping for. That's why this church exists. To delight in that, to worship God for that, and to tell others about that. And so I just want to briefly look at the last little bit of this passage. John transitions from uh, John the Baptist at the beside the, the River Jordan, and he goes to Jesus calling his first disciples. And so he says, the next day again, John the Baptist was standing with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. He's got one message, this guy, it's good. Behold the Lamb of God. The two, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. That's about four o'clock. 
One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So you see what's happening here? John the Baptist is witnessing, he's testifying to who Jesus is, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. He's telling people about who this man is and then people are responding with faith to follow Jesus. And this is the pattern of human history in the church from then until now. John the Baptist proclaims who Jesus is. His own followers leave and follow Jesus. He's not upset. He's not jealous. He knows who he is. He knows who Jesus is. And he says, go, follow him. He's the one to follow. Out of the two disciples of John that followed Jesus, one of them's Andrew, who's Peter's brother. Peter ends up being the leader of the church. And Andrew goes and finds him and says, come, we've found the Messiah. This is the pattern of human history in Christianity ever since that time. Jesus said to himself in Matthew 28, I think it's verse 18 and following, he said, after his resurrection from the dead, before he went to be with the Father in heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples. Tell them about who I am and what I've done. And this has been the pattern ever since. John tells Andrew. Andrew tells Peter. They come to Jesus and believe in him. They believe that he is the Messiah. We have found the Messiah, the Son of God. This. 43 to 46. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law also said, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. Andrew and Peter go back to their town, presumably back to where Philip is. They tell the town about who Jesus is. Philip believes who he is. And Philip goes to Nathaniel. The pattern continues. You might be here this morning because someone came to you in, where, in the context you live and told you about who Jesus is. That's how it came about for me. And so the good news spreads. The Messiah is here. He has come. And Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we've found the Messiah. He's come from Nazareth. And Philip says, what? You must be mistaken. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The perception was that Nazareth was, I don't know, it was like, I was going to say New Zealand, but then I, I wouldn't be able to make it out the door without these really big guys hurting me. Uh, it was like, it's like Tasmania, all right? It's like, <laughs> can anything good come out of that place? Of all the places the Messiah would come from, this, this man in the line of David, this conquering king, the last place he's going to come from is Nazareth. And so 
Philip hears his skepticism and he says a beautiful thing. He says, come and see. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't tell him off. He doesn't get emotionally hurt. He just says, come and see. You've got to see this guy. Come and see. This is a great practical tip for us Christians who want to share our faith with others. You come up against arguments. You come up against perhaps antagonistic responses. And and rather than getting hurt or or, or rather than putting your fists up, you you just say, come and see. We would love for this church to be a come and see kind of church. That when people come into this community, they come and see what God has been doing in Jesus in our hearts and lives. They come in and see marriages that are built on a strong foundation of Jesus. They come in and see families that are built on the strong foundation of Jesus. That they see a, a culture within a culture. A city within a city that loves and serves the city around them. Come and see. I would love you to be able to engage friends and say, come and see who Jesus is in the life of this community. Come and see. And so that's exactly what Nathaniel does. He comes and he very much sees. Let's read the last little bit. Verse 47 and following. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. didn't take him much to be convinced, all right? You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? See, Nathaniel knew that Jesus wasn't there when he was under the fig tree, that Jesus knew this by divine inspiration. He knew this by virtue of being the Son of God. And so he falls at his feet and confesses that he is the Son of God. And and Jesus says, really? Is that all it's going to take? Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Another title for Jesus, equating him with God. Let me just explain this last little bit. If you've got to this point in this passage, and you're still hanging on to this, Jesus was just a good man, Jesus was just a good teacher, Jesus was just a prophet, Jesus was just a great philosopher, a moralist, an example, then he's not going to let you hold on to that view. He just said that, that Nathaniel will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on him. To understand this, you need to know a little bit of Bible history. If you go back to, I think it's Genesis 28, you'll see that Jacob has a vision of God, of a stairway to heaven or a ladder to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. That this is a way for, for people to access Heaven itself. It is the way to get to heaven itself. And Jesus just said, I am that ladder. I am the way to God. Later in John chapter 14, we'll get there next year, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
No good moral teacher says that unless it's true. If he's lying, there's nothing good about him. Don't read your Bible ever again if he's lying. He's a fool or a demon. But we believe here at this church that Jesus is telling the truth when he says that I am the way to heaven. I am that stairway. I am that ladder that the angels will ascend and descend on. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the Son of God, God Himself who came into human history. Jesus is the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world so that we could accept free, unmerited grace upon grace. And He is the way and the truth and the life, the only way for us to know God and spend eternity with Him. And so at this church, we really want to give you a a time to respond to this truth. I think very few of you, if you're not yet Christians, will be at a place right now where you want to just sign up like Nathaniel did. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. You are the Son of God, right? Within an hour. There aren't many here probably who want to do that. But we want to walk with you. We want to invest in you. We want to pray with you. We want to meet with you. If any of you have any inclination to follow this up a little more, then by all means, please fill out a next steps card on your way out. It's on the the little desk on your way out. Fill that out and we'll get in contact with you and make time to catch up with you. I know where you are right now. I I spent the best part of a year wrestling with this, okay? Because faith comes to us by God's grace, some of you may be at that point this morning where you just want to say, I believe this stuff. I don't know why, but I do. Maybe you want to be like Philip and Nathaniel, Andrew and Peter and confess who Jesus really is, the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Then we'd love to pray with you after the service. Just come to the front here. When everything's done, everyone will go out and the tension won't be on you and we'd love to pray with you after the service right here. But right now I want to pray for us and ask that God would really do a work in us as a community. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for John. We thank you that he's so upfront. He doesn't beat around the bush. He knows who Jesus is. He knows the purpose of his book is to show us that fact that Jesus is God himself. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who was killed on our behalf. And that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So I pray for this church that you would make us a come and see kind of community where people could come and see who you are by virtue of who you're making us to be. That they could come and see who you are in your word so clearly described for us. And that your spirit that descended on your son to authenticate who he was, that that same spirit would be among us, would be in us making us more like Jesus. 
And so now, Father, as we stand and sing praises to you, I pray that we would sing just out of a sense of gratitude, a sense of just overwhelming joy at having experienced your forgiveness. Though we don't deserve it, you poured it out on us, grace upon grace upon grace. And so we have this hope. Please make it an anchor for our soul. Please encourage us in it. May we rejoice now in all that you are, in all that you've done, in all that you're going to do. For your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.